Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. So for you who have just joined us, this is a rant. We are going to go places that most dare not. This is not just a Bible study. You can be troubled or disagree. I will say a lot that you probably haven't heard all legit. So like any rant, just listen, weigh it, study it, look at the passages, think and see if it has any merit. So why have we picked a rant? First of all, it's a lot of fun. But secondly, there's a lot of times in the history of biblical interpretation and application where we get stuck in exegetical ruts. One person 50 years ago said this, and then the next person repeated them, and so on, until we think we've understood a passage, but in fact, we've just stopped doing good exegetical Bible study. We are mining a bit deeper, and and we're open to seeing something different. I'm just saying. All right? And we need to get the Sermon on the Mount right. That's where we are. It's it's the foundation of all of Jesus' gospel and his life. I think that we have been a little sloppy with it. So listen, invite your friends to Gospel Rant, your enemies. Tell your Bible study group, your missionaries, your pastors, your family. We're cool with all of that. Send it to your email list, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you got. Thanks ahead of time. And if you want to give me some feedback, I encourage that. Bill at gospel-app.com. You won't be the first. Believe me. Be kind. Now listen, before we plunge in, many of you already know that the Gospel Rant is now partnering with Life Audio in this podcast. So that means a few changes, not many, but here's one. We're going to take a short break to hear from a sponsor. That's right, we have sponsors. When we come back, we will get back into the Sermon on the Mount. Stick around. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Literally, thus or this way, shine your light. I don't think let your light shine is really accurate here. It's imperative. Shine your light before others in order that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Oh my goodness, there's so much more here. I love it. Context is everything. Remember, uh, hopefully you've been following us for a while and and tracked us during the Beatitudes. The people that Jesus is speaking to have already been transformed a little or a lot by the proclamation of Jesus. 
He's lavished them, this mixed group of not enough Jews and not enough Greeks, people who would not in any way expect much from God or their religion, their religious institutions. They wouldn't have looked to the heavens for a benefactor or a patron. They would have thought they hadn't earned that or they had forsaken that. And remember, they were in an honor-shame world. They would have assumed that they had messed up, they had sinned, or their parents had sinned, right? That bad theology. And they were being punished since so many wouldn't have been welcomed in the temple, or if you were a Jew, maybe not even the synagogue. They didn't have a lot of hope for an offering to assuage God's justice. They didn't have a benefactor, a patron. So they were stuck in a hole, a deep, lonely hole with only a shovel, until Jesus on this slope in Galilee. And Jesus gave them a gift himself that usually was expected to only be offered to the worthy, the pure, the holy, the righteous. So think Sadducees and Pharisees and synagogue rulers and Essenes, righteous men and women, but not them. And yet Jesus is proclaiming Already in the Beatitudes, if you've followed us through the Beatitudes in earlier podcasts, to think of the promises that God made to Israel. These people, Jews and Greeks, and beat up Jews and Greeks. And remember what he says in, in Matthew 5, 3, heaven is yours, meaning God is yours and you are God's. Forty times God says that to the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's shocking. And Jesus is offering this incongruous gift to them not because they are worthy, to make them worthy. It's unbelievable. And Jesus has that authority. And remember, he doesn't say, heaven is yours if only you did this more, fill in the blank. Maybe you became circumcised, you made a sizable offering to the building fund, you went and got baptized by John the Baptist, you stopped sinning, or even even to follow Jesus. He doesn't say that in, in the Beatitudes. Just a chapter before, Jesus commanded his disciples, the four disciples anyway, to follow him. And here, he doesn't say that. to the. It's not recorded anyway. They did, though, the akloi poloi, we read in chapter 8, this vast crowd, apokalutheo, follows him in the same way, the same Greek word that the disciples did. Something happened. So he also says in the Beatitudes, they're going to be comforted by God. Well, why? What did they do to deserve that? What do they need to do? Well, he doesn't list anything, right? And the law is still the law. Jesus is not against the law. We're going to get into that in the next podcast. Yet he doesn't even mention the law in the Beatitudes. Isn't that fascinating? Every fiber of my being would have wanted to say, if you comfort others, well, then you just might expect, I mean, if you did enough, you would expect God to comfort you. But, you know, if you if you don't say that, aren't you afraid of enabling bad behavior, just telling them that God's going to comfort them? If you just say God will comfort you without any quid pro quo, right? Doesn't God understand? <laughs> and then he says, you will inherit the land. Think of that in light of the context and current events, Israel and the land of Israel. What? And who is he saying this to? Good and righteous, faithful Jews who obey the Torah? Well, yeah, they're there, but now there's a new category. The meek are are the ones who are going to inherit the land, those who can't fix their own lives. They can't kick their addictions. They can't restore broken relationships. Oh my goodness, they're sinners. Why in the world is Jesus giving the land, this cherished, promised land, 
to this generic category, the, the meek, the ill-prepared, the unprepared? Well, one answer is, look, the first category, the good and righteous faithful Jews, didn't exist. I mean, there's no Jew, particularly on that hillside, who would have raised their hand and said, bingo! They're only from God's perspective, the meek, the anawim in the Hebrew. These are people who have failed the covenant. They are to one degree or another unrighteous per the Torah, unfaithful per the Torah, sinners, impure, unclean. Now listen, this is God's DNA. This is so important. Without letting go of the standard of perfection to the law, Jesus is rescuing law failures. And this is eventually going to require that he satisfy the demands of the law for justice for all who become his disciples. That's the cross, right? But he was willing. That's why he came, among the other many reasons. So you see the strangeness of the Beatitudes. Jesus is handing the promised keys of the kingdom to the unworthy, the unlikely, the ill-prepared, the impure, the unbelievers, in a word, sinners. And by the way, as of yet, unrepentant in the Beatitudes, Jesus never requires repentance either. So these are not the people that should be the ones picked to start a new Torah slash gospel movement. And honestly, they're hardly lights. Well, they're lights for selfishness and unbelief, but a banner to the world for a triune God? You know, not, not my first choice, but it is for Jesus. So what are they a banner for? Well, they represent, I mean, in the flesh, they represent a God whose compassion and love rescues failures, unbelievers, who adopts the unfaithful, who marries the impure, and those he chooses, these people, to shine his light through to the world. Do you want to know God, I mean, really hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? There are now two options. First, you can love him with all your heart, mind, and soul for your entire life, no exceptions, and love your neighbor, including your enemies, at the same level and success. Good luck with that, by the way. Or you could respond to Jesus's proclamation of being his adopted child, like the people on the hillside. So if you were wanting to reach a broken world, increasingly secular, self-focused, violent, riddled with racism, inequities, indifferences, slavery, tribalism, strict, often harmful religion, sexism, gender dysphoria, and all the rest, which approach do you think has the best success, even humanly speaking? Well, so one, Jesus rescues the unworthy, marries them, makes them his beloved bride, proclaims them enough and pure and loved, showers them with a new name, honor, position, and value, and then says, go and tell the rest of the beat-up failures out there that this is the DNA of the Creator God. There's nothing you could have done that would ever disqualify you from receiving this gift. Come with empty hands. God fills empty hands. There it is. You know, these people who are stuck in unenviableness become enviable, all because of Jesus. It meaning that others now see them, look at them and go, oh my gosh, what, what do they have? Look, I, I'm, I'm envious of them. They are, they have become right? With little effort on their part, God's show and tell. Come on. If they love others instead of resenting others or doing revenge for all the mistreatment in their lives or go crazy and to make up for lost time building their own fortunes, well, that's something we haven't seen before. 
how do you explain people not reacting that way? Do you remember the parable of the magnanimous king and the boneheaded servant, the one that, who, that had mismanaged all the king's fund? Remember that the king paid all the debts himself. He covered all of the shortcomings of the boneheaded servant. He restored the servant's name and status in the court. If anyone should have gone and loved other servants, it was this guy. But, and here's the point of the parable, he didn't. Well, why? Because he was not the magnanimous king. He was human in a all-too-groaning world. I mean, sorry to be so blunt, but if the servant had the king's spirit, the king's DNA, he would also have felt splagnizomai. That's the Greek word for the compassion that was innate to the king. And he would have had it for his fellow servants. And what would that have looked like? Well, one of the things, he would have paid the servant's debt to himself by himself. Simple. And if he had done that, the servant might have, just might have credited the king and the king's spirit in him, okay? Well, the people on the hillside were not just given a new social status, as cool as unexpected as that is, they were also transformed a little or a lot to look like and act like and and want to do things that the king would do. They had light. And we've all felt that a little, hopefully a lot. And it is these who see God, Right? Not the temple priest. Remember, the temple was empty, uh, the presence of God. It is these people who are being brought near, who have become the salt of the world, not the cultural Jews alone, just because they were born Jews. No, it's these people, Jews and Greeks. These are the new light of the new messianic king. This is shocking stuff. These people are now God's lights. And before, in Isaiah 9, we're told that the light is emanating from a coming king, a son, a son who has incarnated social justice. And these who walk in darkness, in Isaiah 9, or who, who's he referring to? Well, that includes Jews, cultural Jews, includes Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Romans, Syrians, all of us. All of us. When Jesus came, that's all he finds. And then he is that light emanating from the throne room of the heavens. And the darkness is shattered by this light. It's noticeable. And it is from God, ultimately. But there's more. Jesus seems to be saying that it is not just him. It's this unlikely dirty dozen who are also light bearers. It's crazy, right? They didn't go to light-bearing college. Jesus calls them, and they follow. And by the way, just to note, this light is good, but it's also a threat to much of the darkness, right? Remember the last two Beatitudes about persecution. So, says Jesus, when these unlikelies, who are now light bearers, go out, and remember, they are changed some, they have been honored, they have been noticed and adopted in this honor-shame culture, they have a patron now that they never had before or have ever deserved, but nevertheless, they have one and are now, at least celestially speaking, honored folk. And they had to have felt that a little or a lot, they're less needy, and they might just tend to care for others a little more, comfort others a little more, and maybe people will notice that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And by the way, this isn't Jesus' strategy. It's not a new tactic to, you know, let's do something really good, and then people will be attracted to the gospel. You know, that could help, by the way, maybe true, but that's not what Jesus is articulating here. Here's what he's saying. Shine this new light, not yours, not you trying harder. 
It's beyond what you can muster up. And the people who know you, who really, really, really know you, will realize that there's something bigger here. They will see you and hear your new words and see your works and, and look at your eyes and your heart. And they are going to do something remarkable, right? They're going to hit the ground and praise God. That's what they're going to do. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing scene Jesus is setting up. And, and you know, clearly because God is working through you and, and the people can see it. And they will see you more of, of a son or a daughter of your father in heaven. Because no one expected anything like that coming from you, right? Just saying. It's a big deal. This has never happened to these people before, not once. Never, ever have they done anything nice and unselfish and, wit and witnessed anyone fall to their knees thanking God for what he or she has done in their lives. And by the way, this has probably not happened to a single Pharisee either or Sadducee. Those folks were professional do-gooders. You know, you do every offering prescribed by Torah because it's commanded. But no one saw their good deeds and hit the floor praising God working in their souls, at least not recorded. Oh, sure, people may have praised them for being godly, but that's not what Jesus says either. Shine your light before men, meaning go in love with my love, in order that they see your good deeds, obviously love God and love others, and praise not you, not your ethics or your intentions or how much you've turned around or your holiness or your religious humility or your love for God even. They praise God. They credit God. They don't credit you. They credit God. Implying we don't have any explanation for the change in your heart and actions and motivations that can be explained any other way other than that God has intervened and he's doing something we've never seen through you. You are a modern prophet a saint, a righteous woman, a righteous man. It's not about your hard works. It's something new. It's something miraculous and inexplicable. We can only reasonably say that something has happened and you are now a particular God person. And they don't praise you. They see you, but they praise God. I want to pick that up, but I'm going to take another short break for another commercial. Hang in there. We're going to pick it up with the astonishing thing that Jesus says that is so often overlooked and should be a lot of fun for us. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, welcome back. Stunning, right? If this is a fruit of the Spirit working through them and, and us, it's a massive strategy for the kingdom that I don't think we've talked much about. Before this, it was understood that God pulled back from such people, right? Sinners, unbelievers, uh, unclean. There were, some were demon-possessed, untouchable. Some were lepers. But now we see that's not the strategy. God's DNA is that he moves towards such people. He embraces them, transforms them, adores them. He identifies with them by permanently becoming their patron. By the, with no strings attached, he covers the strings on their behalf and includes them in all of the promises made to Abraham, Moses, David, and Israel. And then, then to top it off, they begin to act like Jesus, a little. They embrace the unclean and want to. They embrace the oppressed and want to. The impure, the irreligious unbelievers, because they want to more. They, like the Good Samaritan, really, really sacrificially give to needy others because they want to, not because it's commanded. Eventually, this becomes the fruit of being a Jesus follower. Then they will know you are Christians, not just by any love or by doing something kind or good or something prescribed by your religion, but by this particular type of love. It's, it's remarkable. Our people, the people who know you the best, do they see that you're possessed by a different spirit, one that loves the unlovable and the unworthy around you, not because you're just convinced that it's a good thing to do, it's because you do love them a little. You feel honor towards those that the world and society and community dishonors. And if asked why, you would have to say, I, I can't give an answer. It's got to be Jesus. Jesus healed me. I was blind and now I can see. Think about it. This is the beginning of the end of racism in our world, of sexism, of social injustice. Secularism has nothing on this. By the way, religion has nothing on this. Jesus, in and through broken, unworthy people, loving, broken, unworthy people, because they do. All right, so how do we get there? Box number one, be unworthy. Okay, check. Box number two, be unlovable. All right, check. Box number three, be unloving and self-centered to one degree or another. <laughs> okay, check. Box number four, ask Jesus for his spirit to shine Jesus's light through you. And keep on asking over and over until people notice a difference. And keep it up until they credit God and then keep it up until they hit the ground and praise God. And one last note. Jesus does not say that other Jesus-filled people are the ones who will see your good works and praise God. This is fascinating to me. He doesn't even say other believers or other Jews. He says people. I think that this implies that there is a revival happening in the wake of Jesus' people in sync with the Spirit in them who are doing what they are newly motivated to do, loving and honored, the unworthy, the ugly, the displaced, and the, the, the oppressed. See, even unbelievers, agnostics, and atheists see that stuff, and they shake their head and come to the conclusion, the obvious conclusion, the incontrovertible conclusion that in spite of what they thought earlier, there must be a God. Because look, look, is what, look at what has happened to you. He has infected you, an unlikely, and then something even stranger happens. Something cracks in the witnesses, and they hit the ground, right? Former unbelievers, agnostic and atheists, and worship God. Doesn't this imply that they actually become believers? Yeah, I think so. 
This is what the Spirit can do and is impassioned to do. And again, our job is to ask the Spirit to make us want to do those good works and give us love for others through us. We already have the love of Jesus for us for eternity. This is more than that. This is a present experience of the love of Jesus that loves others over ourselves. This is not a list of to-dos. This is a miracle of transformation that cannot be explained by anything about us previously. It is not about us trying harder or being more disciplined or being better persons. This is not about us faking it until we make it or trying to get out of boys or out of girls from other Christians or trying to gain influence and power in the church or anything else explainable by human beings. This is inexplicable. This is jaw-dropping and wonderful. In heaven, this is all of us. The exciting thing is that we can begin to experience it now a little or a lot. Check out, uh, it's an older song, but Lauren Daigle's song, You Say, here, here are some of the words. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. And you say I'm held when I'm falling short. And when I don't belong, you say I'm yours. And I believe, I believe. What you say of me, I believe. Well, this I believe, in, in conjunction with what we've been talking about, it is not human effort. I'm, I'm, I'm really straining my brain to accept this. It's a human response to a miraculous change within us when we're made to feel loved. Before, we were just on the Isle of Misfit Toys. Remember that? But now we're in the arms of a child who loves us. We're transformed from misfit toy to a beloved toy. And it makes a difference. No one would have said to these people before that that they had any light, much less would have shamed them more by telling them that they now had to go and do light. Right? They were considered one degree or another in darkness, but something happened. And they would have had to have felt it to believe that they now had that light. Something happened. Before, they were filled with the shame's darkness. Shame is what one person writes, an acutely painful emotion in which the self is experienced as small or childish, worthless and self-condemned and paralyzed and helpless, right? Not enoughness. It involves a feeling of exposure of the entire self and a desire to disappear, to run away or to hide. There's no light there, no good works for others. This is someone who's just struggling to survive. Another person adds, shame feels like a solitary pain, but in fact, shame in all of its forms is relational. Shame is the experience of self in relation when in relation is ruptured or disconnected. A chronic sense of self and disconnection becomes a profound sense of isolation, which in turn leads to feelings of despair and unworthiness. No light there. Shame is another quote. Shame strikes at our basic sense of worth, making us feel that we are fundamentally wrong or not good enough. Shame becomes part of our global self-schema and becomes a lens which all experience is filtered. No light there. Well, you can see these people have changed. They are now light givers. They went from the hopeless bottom of the demographical food chain, deeply shamed in a very honor-shame culture, which no way that they could fix, then Jesus, who incongruously and without any string, becomes their patron, as they are. They haven't changed yet. 
Think of the release of shame. Think of the their shoulders dropping a little bit. Think of the, the, the reduced depression, the, the sense of unworthiness gone. There's another way of looking at this passage, just real quickly. Until now, the goal has implicitly been to do things and get blessed by God. And that was the end. That's the T loss, right? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's the formula. Do these things and God will bless you. Uh, But the formula has changed in an extra human way. God is blessed and praised when the person acts like Jesus. Not you, God is. Their goal, the person who's doing this, the goal has changed from them being praised to wanting God to be praised. When Jesus said this, what they might have expected him to say is, let people see your good works and God will bless you, or they will praise you. But he was saying something enigmatic. Then they, perhaps those you sacrificed for or comforted or came alongside of or gave to charity for or honored or forgave, they're going to praise God, not you. That's a transformation. For typically, humans, our internal desire is to get credits, to earn something, right? But when the Jesus gift is received and embraced, there's a new motivation that usurps the usual human motivation. And listen, I'm setting a table for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is now speaking to light people, to Jesus people, who to one, who to one degree or another get it. To one degree or another, they're the after picture. The before picture of all of us is living and walking in darkness. So I don't want to admit that, but uh, this way it is. And and I think culturally, we've created scales, spectrums of darkness, kind of like grayscales. Sure, I may be walking in darkness, but compared to Putin, I'm gray, not black. You with me? I'm not quite as dark. But Jesus has put these people on a different celestial scale. It's not their light, but his through them. Dark shiners have become light shiners, new creatures. So they're going to hear the rest of the Sermon on the Mount differently. They can laugh. They can hear the joke. Jesus is going to say, you're supposed to do such and such. But you know what? I'm telling you, it's even worse. And you don't even do that. But I will. See, they get it a little or a lot since they hear it differently. They're not consumed with new shame thinking that they need to work harder or gird their loins and run faster or be defensive when Jesus says, but I tell you, they can hear that and and, and get it and accept they've really fallen far shorter than they thought. But Jesus is here. He is their patron now. He is taking on their burden and he's giving them light that's not subject to their abilities or choices. They are now the new flawed prophets. It's the Sermon on the Mount pattern. You should do this, but you don't or you won't. That's why I came. Less to be a teacher, he is that, so much more, and less to be a clarifier of the Torah, I came as a rescuer for failures and a transformer because we've got work to do. To begin to really do the Torah, you will need to start with a new heart that I have to give you and a new spirit, mine. How have we missed the simplicity of this? All right, enough for now. Contact me. Tell me your light story. I would love to hear it. Or just push back. That's fun too. Bill at gospel-app.com. I want to take a second again to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. 
They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and now one about a gospel rant. Until next time, take heart, child of God. Jesus wants our fears to launch us toward faith. Then he grins and says, Do you trust me? Because together we can do this. With Mornings with Jesus, you can start your day in a positive way. Find hope through inspirational stories and scripture. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Mornings with Jesus. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.